You're listening to Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Washington, D.C. office. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Beltway Beef podcast. This is Ashley Willits, and I'm joined by Kent Backus, who's the Senior Director of International Trade and Market Access for NCBA. Uh, Kent, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Well, before we dive into all of our topics today, we're going to talk all things trade, COVID-19, trade deals, the Biden administration. One of the things that our viewers might not know about you is that you are actually an excellent cook. And so this morning, I wanted to dive in a little bit into some of your favorite beef recipes. Well, this really catches me off guard, but I wouldn't call myself an excellent cook, but let's just say I've I've learned a lot from trial by error. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of cooking low and slow. And so if I have access to a smoker, uh, there's nothing better than, uh, than spending, you know, 16 to, to 20 hours with a brisket and just uh, all the reactions that are happening as you cook that, just the, with the smoke, the temperature, uh, breakdown of all the tissue, and then the, the great finished product there is just nothing better than a slow-cooked, smoked brisket. That's one of my favorite things to cook. I don't get a lot of time to, to actually do that, but but when I have a chance to, to cook a brisket, there's no better experience. And a lot of people that are listening out there know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, I feel like for your fellow Texans out there, they know exactly what you're talking about. But, you know, it's, it's funny that you say you don't always get enough time to cook brisket because I feel like you're spending most of your time doing trade stuff here in the office. Um, you're here early and here late. So let's just go ahead and dive into that. Um, so a lot has happened in the past year. And so let's just talk today about COVID-19 and how those supply chain disruptions have affected trade. Well, I, I think we're all glad that 2020 is behind us. I know that you know, some people have uh, Christmas ornaments commemorating just how terrible last year was. But when you look at the trade uh, scenario overall, we fared much better than uh, a lot of our competitors uh, here in the United States and, and around the world. We fared better than other proteins. And, and quite frankly, uh, we did not have uh, some of the great losses that we saw some of the other uh, proteins in their exports. But for us, uh, you know, it was... It was uh, it was a hard time. Uh, it wasn't all uh, yeah, an easy path at all. Uh, you know, the first quarter of 2020, we started out really strong. Uh, it looked like we were going to have a great year. We were capitalizing on all this expanded access we had, especially into Japan, to the European Union, and uh, into China. Uh, you know, with the Phase One agreement kicking in, uh, we were really excited about the opportunities that were that we were going to have in that massive market. Unfortunately, when COVID hit, the world shut down, uh, but there was still strong demand. I would say even stronger demand in some of these foreign markets for that safe, high quality U.S. beef. And so we had to work very closely with our government. We worked very closely with, with foreign governments to make sure that we could keep those supply chains open. Likewise, you know, we use a lot of imported product uh, to, to help make uh, ground beef. Because we produce a lot of fat cattle here. You can't really get fat beef and lean beef out of the same animal. It just doesn't work like that. Uh, but we do use some of those lean beef trimmings from Australia, New Zealand, places like that to help us, you know, make some of these uh, hamburgers. So with all that said, there were disruptions. Uh, there were also disruptions in getting beef to the, the supermarkets themselves. 
and so it was i'd say for six or seven months there it was uh there was a kind of this big yo-yo effect that was happening uh in supply chains uh, towards the end of the year we really came out strong and as we start to see uh you know more supermarkets are, are going to continue to be the bulk of our sales for a while but as we start to see uh, markets reopen we start to see restaurants reopen we're really going to see beef take off and i think uh, 2021 is going to be a promising year for us that's good to hear i know like you said last year was kind of crazy and so it's good to know that um, there's a positive outlook and, and things are hopefully going to get better in, in the coming year um, but you talked a little bit about it earlier but our, our trade deal with china our trade deal with japan can you just give us a rundown of the trade deals that have happened in the past year and then the outlook for the future on trade? Yeah, I think, you know, on January 1st of 2020, that's when we saw the Japan agreement kick in, uh, which lowered our tariff rate, put us on par with all of our competitors, especially Australia and Canada, in our number one export market, Japan. Uh, so we've seen that 38.5% tariff come down. I think we're at about 25% right now. Uh, which is good. Uh, we're going to see that drop even more uh, as this, this deal is implemented. Uh, we also saw uh, a U.S.-specific quota in the European Union, and that really helps a lot of our producers that, that focus on that NHTC market, that non-hormone-treated cattle program. It's going to help them. Obviously, that's not the final destination for us with the EU. We're going to try to open up that entire market, but that's a great first start. And then, obviously, with China, the Phase 1 agreement, it really didn't start kicking in until about March. About that time is when the markets all started closing down. Uh, but with China, we saw uh, the removal of the hormone ban. Uh, we saw uh, the removal of a lot of these other uh, requirements, including a BSE restriction, that 30-month restriction that really uh, prevented us from being able to sell most of our herd into that, that market. And so with China, we, you know, we were able to really make up the make up those sales at the end of the year. But with that agreement, that really sets us up uh, to develop that market. And I, I honestly think that in the next five years, China could be easily one of our, our top three markets. And just with all of the, uh, I'm a, that's probably a pretty bold prediction, but I think with, with all the opportunities that we have there, you know, China is going to be a very strong market for U.S. beef exports. Great. And what are you thinking for the future? What's coming down the pipeline? What are you watching on some of those trade deals that might happen next? Well, I think, you know, one of the key things that we have been really paying attention to is the developments with the United Kingdom. In a post-Brexit environment, there's a lot of opportunity there to set trade terms that are actually based on science, that are based on the free market, kind of help them get out of that EU mindset that was so protectionist and so subjective and really have rules of trade that allow them to be competitive and allow us to be competitive in their market. That's going to be a longer discussion. That's going to be something that'll, that'll probably carry out through this year. But when you look at the, the Biden administration, some of the big things coming for them, uh, one of the first things is we have to see trade promotion authority re reauthorized. That is set to expire uh, this summer. And for just a little bit of background for, for TPA, trade promotion authority, that enables the executive branch to negotiate trade agreements on behalf of Congress. It's Congress as the, the constitutional authority, and they love to, to talk about that. Uh, but to expedite these negotiations and to make sure that uh, we have trade agreements that can actually get through Congress, we have trade promotion authority. 
Uh, there's a lot of oversight that's involved there. We'll talk about that on, on some, I'm sure on some future podcasts, get into the details on it. But TPA is one of those things that it really uh, equips our negotiators to go and negotiate in good faith on behalf of the American people. And so we're going to need to see that renewed this year. From that, I think we'll see you know, hopefully more progress with the United Kingdom. I think we'll also see uh, some progress with some of these negotiations with African countries. Uh, Africa, there are a lot of emerging markets there that are very important for U.S. agriculture. Uh, for beef, I think they're, uh, it's probably not as strong as it is for, for other commodities. But Africa is, is a booming economy. There's a lot of growth there, not just uh, the population, but the middle class population and very stable economies that are emerging. And it's important that the United States take an active role in helping set those, uh, set those uh, terms of trade. Uh, we see this throughout Africa. They, they, they don't, they're not really receptive to the EU mindset of, of having this subjective, not necessarily science-based stuff. They want science-based trade. They want access, uh, access to production technologies that allow them to be efficient and competitive. And the United States stands ready to be able to, to help them with that. So there's a lot of opportunities for us to engage. Uh, there are some other markets throughout Southeast Asia as well. But, you know, for us, I think that you know, we're going to try to do everything we can to assist the Biden administration, to assist Congress in opening these markets, because we have seen the benefits of trade impact uh, positively uh, the overall livelihoods of our producers. Trade helps us. Uh, it really helps us become even more competitive. It strengthens our bottom lines. Uh, you know, a lot of us, uh, you know, a lot of times you'll hear us talk about how export, exports alone attribute $325 to $350 per head. Well, we're seeing that volume-wise, we continue to export about 10% of what we produce. But on a value basis, it's about 20%. And we're going to see that grow even more. With 95% of the world's population living outside of our borders, trade is what is going to be the vehicle that allows us to access those markets and to really grow. And that, I know that's something that we can all get behind. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I'm glad that we have you and, and your team here working on that. And like you said earlier, standing ready to work with the Biden administration on what they're going to do in the future. And I think kind of dovetailing off that comment you made. So the Biden administration in the area of trade, um, like they have in, in all the other areas, have kind of released their expectations on what they're going to do, what their standards are. Can you kind of walk us through of what Biden's team has come out and said about their expectations around trade? So earlier this week, uh, the U.S. Trade Representative's Office issued a report. This is an annual report. Uh, it talks about everything that USTR, the U.S. government, has, has done uh, to advance trade, uh, ongoing issues, issues that have been resolved, and new opportunities. Uh, and, and to lead off with that, it was, here's what we did in 2020. And with 2021, here are the priorities. And with the new administration, this is always a good time to kind of kind of set the stage. Uh, the Biden administration has been very clear that they do want to help us open more markets. They, they want to help agriculture be able to access those markets, but they also want to highlight other priorities. Uh, you know, front and center in, in most policies in this administration is climate. And as climate takes a greater role in trade policy, it's important that we are there alongside them to show them that cattle producers are part of the solution that what we do not only enables rural communities to thrive, uh, but it, uh, it allows 
uh, us to provide healthy, nutritious products with also a, a lower carbon footprint than a lot of other uh, production uh, practices. What we do here in the U.S., when we use technology and we use, uh, we use all these good production practices, we set a high bar. Uh, we also set a great example for the rest of the world to follow. So I think there is an opportunity for us to engage with them uh, on the climate angle. Uh, there are other things that, that they've also highlighted. Obviously, uh, labor, uh, worker rights are going to be front and center on policies uh, like that. So there's a whole lot of there are a whole lot of things that we're going to see uh, this administration uh, try to push forward and, and use trade as the vehicle to do that. Uh, but you know we have a great story to tell. I think this administration recognizes that they see the value in cattle production. And we stand ready to assist the Biden administration in opening these markets and creating more opportunities for U.S. cattle producers. That's great. It's really good to hear. And I think it's good for our listeners to hear um, just so that they know that they have you that's standing ready, that's willing to make sure that the needs of the cattle industry are are being met here in D.C. and and in trade deals as well. Um, So our final question is something that I think you're pretty passionate about. Can you just walk us through why trade is so essential to the cattle industry? Yeah, I, I think you know trade, unfortunately, is one of the most misunderstood issues that's out there. It's it's not it's not a simple zero sum game. I know that there are some uh, some out there in our industry that would like to portray it that way uh, to try to push for some protectionist uh, measures, but trade's not a zero sum game. Uh, you know what we produce here, uh, we produce a very high quality product. And about 85% of what we produce is consumed here domestically. The American consumer is still our number one target. Uh, this is the best market in the world to sell beef. And fortunately, we dominate this market. But Americans don't want to buy everything that we produce from that animal. Uh, you know, we, we can sell ribeyes. We can sell tenderloins. Uh, we can sell a lot of popular cuts. But tongues aren't flying off the shelf here. Uh, short ribs have started to, to reemerge uh, a little bit, but you know there are there are cut, there are some cuts that uh, we kind of refer to sometimes as the fear factor foods. You know things that you look at and be like, "Wow, I never thought about buying this at the grocery store." But they're very popular in cuisines all over the world, and so uh, you know trade agreements allow us to to meet that demand and to provide those consumers with those beef cuts. And as someone who actually you know, likes those beef guts, I can tell you, I wish I could find more of that stuff here in the U.S., but I also understand that we can sell those products at a much higher price uh, to consumers who are willing to pay that in foreign markets. Uh, so on the export side, you know, we see a lot of value added per head by capitalizing on that demand. At the same time, um, you know, we're no longer in the business of taking that, that chuck and throwing it in the grinder because we figured out how to sell it as a flat iron steak for five to six bucks per pound more. That drives more value for our producers. So there's still a lot of ground beef demand. We have a lot of trimmings, a lot of fattier trimmings that are coming off our animals. What do we do with them? We can, we can render them and use them uh, in a whole host of other products, but that's not gonna fetch the same price as we'd see. Uh, there's still a strong demand for ground beef. So we have figured out how to to take those fattier trimmings, create a value-added product by using the lean beef trimmings from uh, from Canada, from Mexico, Australia, New Zealand, other countries that meet our safety standards and that are held to those same, same standards. And we use that to combine and make ground beef. And if we're unable to meet that ground beef demand, 
then we're going to lose that market to chicken and to pork. That's a fact. That's a, that's a, that is a, a part of the market where we have to compete. So imports allow us to stay competitive there. And at the same time, I think it's important to, re- to recognize that only 11% of the beef that's consumed in the United States is imported. And 75% of that almost is, is all hamburger. So let's get the facts straight. Uh, you know, we're, I think it's important that people realize that. But trade, it allows us to capitalize on the demand and maximize the value for every cut on the animal. And that's exactly what we're going to continue to push for. I think it's important that people realize that with trade, we can open more market opportunities. Yeah. Well, that was certainly a really good deep dive explanation. And I think really helps our listeners understand, you know, the facts behind it and and how complicated the issue is. Um, But really appreciate you taking the time to kind of walk us through that there. And thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah. Always happy to be here. Thank you. This has been another episode of Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Washington, D.C. office. Don't forget to check us out online at policy.ncba.org or catch the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify at Beltway Beef, also on Twitter at Beltway Beef. We'll see you next time.